0: Well, good morning all. We're uh, ready to go ahead and get started. Um, I'm sure some others will trickle in as we get going here, but thanks for showing up um, early on time. It's a struggle for me. You all are setting me a good example. So I appreciate that. I appreciate you all coming out for our um, new class. Um, This won't last the entire quarter. It's just intended to go for about 10 weeks or so, at which point uh, Amy Chafisi will be picking up in here and teaching our ladies uh, the next section of Romans that she's been kind of working through periodically. So we've got about a ten-week class that's going to run through the first part of June, and um, in in our in our particular um, curriculum, it, it's not really um, lined out, um, you know, in terms of specifics um, of what we're going to teach. But, but we do have some big kind of buckets that we want to be revisiting from time to time. We, we want to be considering Bible doctrine. We want to be considering church history. And we also want to be considering, uh, kind of practical Christian living topics. This one's a little bit different in that it's kind of part history, um, part theology, um, but, but, but real and, and part kind of apologetics. So, um, I've entitled the class Cultural Apologetics, How Christianity Transformed the World. We'll get into a little bit of what I mean by that in just a moment. Um, I won't be the only teacher in the class. Um, Pastor Thad will be teaching some classes. Um, uh, Jim Golly will be teaching a few classes as well this summer. But I'm going to kick us off for the first couple of classes. We're going to be considering different topics each week, uh, telling stories, um, referencing scripture about ways that Christianity has positively impacted Our world across the past two thousand plus years. So, um, as we get into topic this morning, who can tell me what this show is? Yeah, Brianna. Grace and Frankie. No, but you're close. You got part of it, Grace. But Frankie is a character. But that wasn't the title of the show. It's something about Grace. It's Will and Grace. Will and Grace. Dustin right here revealing his worldliness on the front (laughs) row. I'm just kidding. Um, yes, this is, this is Will and Grace. Um, it, was a, it was a television show that began in the late 90s, 1998. I think the year I graduated high school was the first year, the first season. It ran for about eight seasons. And the reason I begin the class on, on this point and showing a picture of the cast of Will and Grace is to illustrate the need for a class like this. I want to talk about, for a second, the power of story. In 1996, the U.S. Congress passed the Bipartisan Defense of Marriage Act, DOMA. I'm sure you're all familiar with that. And President Bill Clinton signed it into law in 96. In 1998, Will and Grace premiered. And it ran for eight seasons. And for four of those seasons, it was the number one situation comedy on television. It was watched by millions and millions of people. By 2013, significant parts of the Defense of Marriage Act had been overturned, and by 2014, same-sex marriage was legal in more than 30 states. That same year, the Smithsonian Institute um, added an LGBT history collection to their museum, which included items from Will & Grace. The curator of the museum stated that the sitcom used comedy to familiarize a mainstream audience with gay culture in a way that was daring and broke ground in American media. And President Joe Biden, who was then vice president, said that Will and Grace probably did more to educate the American public on LGBTQ issues than almost anything anybody had ever done. Now, why do I say that? Do I, do I hold Will and Grace as uh, the, the reason the Defense of Marriage Act was overturned? No, I don't think that is the, it's the sole reason. But it was certainly showed the power of portraying gay relationships, which I think there were two on the show, in a funny, normal, positive light. Where it was like, yeah, I could consider those people being my neighbors. They're good, you know, they're fine. And of course, just because a person is gay doesn't mean they're not kind and nice and good and nice neighbors. <laughs> but, but, it, but it took what was socially taboo at the time, or at least uh, different, and, and made it mainstream and made it normal and made it acceptable. And um, that had a big effect on the way people thought about gay culture. And Will and Grace made it, we could say, maybe more palatable, more understandable. John Stone Street said that the ideas that shape politics and culture are rarely advanced by argument. Rather, they are advanced by the stories that shape our imaginations. If you can control the stories that people see, hear, and tell each other, you can ultimately control what they think and even how they think. This is the power of story. Why do you think God revealed his word to us in the form of a story? It's because stories are powerful. We're made that way in the image of God. God didn't. Now, of course, the Bible includes more than just stories. It includes, you know, more than just narrative. It includes poetry and apocalyptic literature and letters and and things like that. But, But a large part of scripture is story. It's narrative. And, and that's intentional on God's part, I think, because it should tell us something about the way we are changed. We see a story, we find ourselves within the story, we're changed by the story. So that, that is the reason that we're doing this particular class on cultural apologetics. And I know those two words are somewhat strange, so let's talk about what I mean by cultural apologetics. Trevin Wax, a writer at the Gospel Coalition, he works for Lifeway as well. He says, if apologetics is about making arguments to defend Christian truth, cultural apologetics is about making arguments that showcase the beauty and goodness of Christianity using cultural touch points as an opportunity for gospel witness. It's a precursor to evangelism. It sets the stage so that the beauty of the gospel can be accentuated. So what do we mean by that? Well, referring back to the Will and Grace idea, Will and Grace provided a a portrait of goodness and beauty to the to the American public. It wasn't just a documentary series on the history of homosexuality. It was a it was a situation comedy in which these things were presented as good and beautiful. And so that began to shape the way that Americans thought and interacted with these particular cultures, and ideas. And so that's one of the reasons why I think a class like this on cultural apologetics is so important, because we live in a day where not only the truthfulness of Christianity is challenged, but its goodness and beauty is being challenged. It's not just that Christianity is viewed in some places as morally good to be celebrated, which in many pockets of America it still is, certain towns and communities, but it's becoming less so even in our own community, even in Bible Belt communities. Um, What was once a moral good is now maybe neutral and in many parts of our culture is a negative. So we've moved from, in some places, Christianity being seen as a moral good to be celebrated to a neutral influence to be tolerated and now, or worse, in some places, a negative force to be eliminated. So we need to recover... Not only the truthfulness of Christianity, but also its goodness and its beauty. The the ways in which it helps and blesses the world. So part of our job as Christians in our present cultural moment is to flip the script on how Christianity transformed the world. Because I don't know if you were taught the same history that I was growing up, but for many, Christianity's influence on history was cast negatively as an enemy of true progress. At least that's the way it was taught to me in my public school education. Not that it came, not that they, all the teachers came out and said Christianity's a net negative for the world. It should never have existed. But here's the way the history was told. You had the progressive Roman Empire that was pagan, but it was, I mean, it, there was technological advances, there was roads and aqueducts and all this Life and activity and culture, art was being created. It was great. And then it collapsed. They, t- I, I wasn't told why. <laughs> Part of it was some of that stuff, but it collapsed. And then you had this dark ages come upon the world of religious superstition that invaded uh, what was once an enlightened and progressive culture. And then the enlightenment and the renaissance of the 1500s and 1600s got us out of those dark ages and got us out of those areas of religion and superstition so that we can return to science and reason and progress. And now for the last couple of hundred years, 400, 500 years, we've been living with the, the, the echo and the shadow of the, in, uh, the, of the dark ages still in our system. And we got to keep working that out so that we can get back to a progressive, secular, scientific, reasonable, advanced, pluralistic culture. That's the way I was educated. But is that really true? Is, it, is Christianity really as bad as everyone seems to think that it was on the world? Well, let me just give you a few areas just to kind of launch into this discussion. The cultural narrative, number one, is that Christians aren't really pro-life. They're just pro-birth. We hear that a lot these days, right? Christians are sometimes accused of being pro-birth birth more than pro-life. They, they pretend to be passionate about the lives of the unborn as a political weapon, The argument goes, but they don't really care about children once they're outside the womb. But the data tells a different story. If you just look at Barna's research in 2013, and this has only increased over time, the rates of adopting children among practicing Christians is higher than all U.S. households. So we obviously care about children outside the womb as well. Maybe not as much, but thats it's not true that it's just in the womb. Another cultural narrative is that Christians are sexually repressive and anti-sex creating a toxic purity culture rather than liberated sex, positive people who can enjoy their sexuality. Those who internalize the church's repressive purity culture will be anti-sex. At least that's the claim, but the stats don't agree. In fact, in this, in a recent, uh, study, um, if you look on the, in the numbers here, the, the numbers, uh, blue is men, red is women, um, Among shared secular uh, couples, less mixed religious couples or highly religious couples, highly religious couples reported the most sexual satisfaction with their partners across time. Cultural narrative number three, Christianity is emotionally repressive and bad for your mental health. Surely the church has a negative impact on its adherence mental health, right? Well, according to the Washington Times, regular churchgoers were the only segment of the population whose mental health actually improved in the pandemic. Um, you, if you see, that's, that's pretty small. Um, but if you look, basically, at the top, you have reduced re, reduce risk of death, reduced risk of suicide, reduced risk of depression, and just overwhelmingly, um, regular religious attenders over never or non-attenders was higher and better for mental health over time. (laughs) Cultural narrative number four, Christians don't care about the poor, only political power. In some circles, Christian truth claims are just power plays or a voting block protecting its power and privilege at the expense of the powerless and underprivileged. The reality, though, is people who pray daily and regularly attend church significantly outpace their irreligious neighbors in generosity to the poor, both with their time and their money. So this is... a Pie chart on the left, you have Americans who attended church weekly and pray daily, 65% gave money to the poor in the past seven days by donating time, money, or goods, 41% of other Americans. Uh, Volunteer work in the past seven days, Americans who attended church weekly, pray daily, 45%, other Americans, 27%. So it's just not true that Christians don't care about the poor or volunteer or serve in their communities. Uh, Cultural narrative number five, Christianity is gender oppressive, a tool of the abusive patriarchy, and creates toxic relationships for women. Um, As a whole, the data shows that church attendance yields the most enjoyable and least abusive relationships for women. Contrary to the narrative, theologically conservative gender traditional churches, uh, church attending women are among the happiest and the least abused in the country. And there's another chart that illustrates that. Again, far right, you've got highly religious gender traditional couples with the least amount, or the highest uh, highest relational stability and quality of attachment, is how it was measured. Now, of course, that doesn't change the reality that in conservative circles there is abuse. We've been talking about the SBC, ER, uh, the the executive committee of the SBC, and things like that. But overall, when you look at the entire picture, it tells a much different story. So we could go on and on. There's other articles I've. Uh, attached here that we don't have time to look at individually, but the more one attends church, the less likely the person is to commit a major crime. Children raised in church-going households are less likely to be depressed, use drugs, or engage in sexual activity outside of marriage. Christian marriages are 35% less likely to need a divorce. One study even suggests church attendance can add to the seven years of your life. Or, if it's a difficult church, seven years off your life. So, one and the other. So. Thankfully, I think by God's grace at HBC adding years, I hope but here's the here's the point there's a massive gap between the perception of Christianity in the world and on social media, which we all know is not the real world in many ways um the reality of 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 who Christians are and what they do is very different from the way it's it's presented both in this both in history as we're going to look at and in the data even today now of course that's not. The, the basis by which we judge Christianity are good and true and beautiful, right? But it does give us, I think, appropriate um, conversation points and touch points to challenge people who would uh, oppose the Christian faith on those grounds and, and and ask them questions like, would you be open to other, so- you know, other sources of input um, as far as how Christianity has affected um, the world? So we're gonna, we're gonna get into some of those things. And my goal is to help us tell a better story um, so not to cover up there, I, I, I honestly love church history that doesn't kind of sanct overly sanctify the church and make it like this pure golden thing, because as Dwayne's taught us and Thad taught us and, and, uh, and Andrew and the various people who just walked us through our study of church history, they kind of gave us some of the warts too. Um, I respect, I think, I think as Christians, we got to tell the truth, right? We can't, We can't manipulate history to serve our ends. That doesn't help anybody. We tell the truth about the brokenness and the sinfulness and the ways in which the church, well, the church, either the the true believing church or just the cultural church of the day affected the people around them in very negative ways. In fact, there's a book um, by John Dixon called Bullies and Saints, and it's it's actually a, a pretty honest take on several key turning points in church history where... You had great uh, change happen and, and progress made and the gospel advance in the midst of some, a lot of corruption. And I think that's part of what we're seeing even in this kind of SBC report is you look back and you see the conservative resurgence in the SBC and you're like, wow, I'm so thankful for so many things that came out of that. We recovered the Bible and the gospel. And, but the, the two men that were behind that were were, were sinf- they were really sinful. They Paige Patterson. And others, that I mean, that we're not doing, that we're not following Christ. So, but, is, but we read our Bibles, right? We understand that God draws straight lines with crooked sticks and does things through unbelievers, believers, sinful believers in ways that advances. Now that doesn't mean that what it was right, but it does mean that our God uses um, sinful circumstances to advance his purposes. And so we can be honest about those things God never commends those things. He condemns those things, but nevertheless, he uses those things. So we need to get better at telling stories, the true stories of the goodness and beauty of Christianity. And it begins with understanding the beautiful and good ways that Christianity has transformed the world. So we're going to the strategy of the course is simple. I want us to equip us to tell some better stories and to and to and to be able to communicate those things, both in our families, to each other as encouragements and also to um, our friends and neighbors who are skeptical. And so we begin with the topic of freedom this morning. Freedom, the idea of human rights and freedom. Now, I wanna talk before we get into some of the stories uh, about this concept of the air we breathe. Um, Glenn Scrivener, who's a, um, a British apologist, a younger guy, I really like him. Jim Golly first introduced me to him. Um, I really like his stuff. Um, and he's re- recently released a book called The Air We Breathe. And basically what he's trying to do in the book is he's trying to trying to to bring to the surface the Christian values that have been embedded in Western culture that we take for granted and that we actually use against Christianity. Um, so it's a very interesting kind of take apologetically. He's trying to show... Hey, these are the these are the ways in which you actually argue against Christianity, but you need Christianity to argue that way. So it's a a very interesting take. He calls just the air we breathe. We don't even recognize that we're we're, that we're doing it. And many people today assume that liberty and justice for all is a result of secular thinking, Um, that that human rights and the idea that that people should be treated with freedom uh, is is just a progressive um, secular idea. But in reality, the liberties and rights that we possess today, not just in our own nation, but wherever they appear in the world in any meaningful, holistic sense, are rooted in the biblical conviction that all human beings are made in the image of God and equal in dignity, which we've been talking about in in our gender series. So the origin of human rights is rooted in the image of God biblical idea. So where do human rights come from then? Well, many in the secular world would provide... Uh, neither an object, ne- objective basis for claiming inherent uh, human rights, nor an objective basis for defining what they are. A right is something to which a person is entitled, but we can't be entitled to something unless someone entitles us to it. So a government can pass laws to create societal rights for its citizens, and those aren't but those aren't the kind of universally held rights meant by the term human rights. Without a higher than human authority to give all people rights. Universally held rights can't exist. And furthermore, the idea of human rights assumes that there's something special about humans relative to other creatures. We call them human rights, after all. Uh, That we have the rights to things like life and liberty, even though no one presumes animals have those same rights in the same sense that humans do. Yet in a naturalistic or secular framework, humans are just another animal that developed by, by chance over time. And given that there's no objective basis for morality in secularism, it can't even be assumed that the rights we supposedly have are the rights we should categorize as good. What is good? So with so much talk of rights in today's culture, coupled with so much opposition to Christianity, we have to help our neighbors and friends understand that, we're, that by arguing for human rights in this way, you're sawing off the log you're standing on. By opposing Christianity in the name of human rights, we need Christianity to uphold human rights, all human rights, not just Christian rights, all human rights. We'll talk about that a little bit next week with the importance of religious liberty for all and and um, what the Bible has to say about all that. But... um Interestingly, this is about six years ago, um, Cambridge University did an extensive study. It's two volumes, it's very large, called Christianity and Freedom, where they tried to look at world history and see where Christianity's influence led to human rights flourishing. And this was the conclusion of the study. Free institutions hardly ever developed in places that were not influenced by Jewish and Christian ideas outside of this tradition. It has been rare for thinkers to suppose that God endowed us, with a nature of our own, and that freedom is part of that nature. So the basic conclusion was where you see the highest and best treatment for human rights, you see civilizations that had been infected by the Judeo-Christian worldview. So, I mean, that's not surprising to us, but it, it's good to see it affirmed in a historical study done over a period of years by an, a university with the reputation of a Cambridge. So, um, Whereas the early church needed a strong apologetic foundation think of the early Christians in Rome, uh, to introduce its worldview to the dominant culture, today's church needs a strong apologetic foundation to reclaim the borrowed parts of its worldview from the dominant culture. So what do I mean by that? We're in a slightly different place than than the early church was. Because the early church, Jesus had just rose from the dead. This was a brand new worldview. They had never considered these things before. Jews had, but Gentiles certainly hadn't. It was very pluralistic. And so they moved into this space, and you see this in the book of Acts, with, I mean, this is, they're introducing ideas left and right. But when we, with our culture, because we have some roots in the Christian worldview and a Judeo-Christian ethic of, of culture and life, what, what we need to do is a little bit different. We need to be able to recognize where our culture is borrowing those ideas and And help them see the Christian roots of them, the biblical roots behind them, and the good fruit that they bear, so um again, this is not the gospel; we still preach the gospel, but this is this is a way to that, that get be, to get people who would maybe be disinterested in the gospel, I ask them, yeah, it's your thing, to actually see it as true truth <laughs> as truth that applies to your life and not just my life. so uh reclaiming the borrowed parts of 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 our culture. the the borrowed parts of the Christian worldview in our culture are important. That's kind of what we're trying to do in this, this particular class. So in doing so, I hope we strengthen our own convictions as we grasp how only the biblical worldview can accommodate all that we intuitively know about the nature of humanity in its worldview box, that is the Christian worldview box. And this is a coherence that speaks volumes about the truthfulness of Christianity. But we can also strengthen our case to the secular world when we're able to articulate one of the most Great or the greatest, not most greatest and most telling ironies of our time that humans gravitate to the authority of self, yet intuitively continue to cherish values that depend on the authority and existence of God, a God who can define morality, imbue humans with equality and entitle them to rights. So we have to borrow in order to uh, live consistently, even though we want to be self ruling individualism. And that's not new. That's as old as Eden, right? We want to be self-ruling individuals, but we have to borrow, if we're going to have values at all, we have to borrow those in many ways from um, God himself. So let me tell, we're going to talk three stories this morning of the ways that Christianity impacted the world in terms of human rights and human freedom. And you'll be familiar with the figures, I think, but um, maybe not familiar with all the stories. So one I hope you're familiar with is this guy. You may tell me who he is? I know he looks like, is that Jefferson? <laughs> All the guys in the 1800s kind of have the same look. Do you know who this is? This is William Wilberforce. So um, I fit like Esther had that right there. You were right there with it, weren't you? All right. So um, I hope you know who William Wilberforce is, um, a great brother in Christ who led the abolition of slavery in England. And uh, just to tell you a little bit of his story. Um, so Queen Elizabeth I um, lived from 1558 to 1603, and um, she was told that the early efforts to take slaves from Africa to the Americas, when she was told of those things, she was outraged that England was participating in those sorts of activities, and she warned that the slave trade, in her words, would call down the judgment of God on the nation, would call down what she said, the vengeance of heaven against us. But much like what happened in our own country, The commercial interests prevailed, and between the reign of Elizabeth I and the end of the 18th century, about 10 to 12 million African slaves were taken over to forced labor in the Americas, and admittedly, Africa was involved in this as well, right? So Africans were selling off, so it was a mutual form of sin that was taking place both in Britain and on the African continent as well. And African slaves were taken over to forced labor in the Americas, and they were the ones who didn't perish, that is, those who didn't perish on the journey. We know from stories that many didn't even make it just as a result of the conditions on the ships and things. Um, shockingly, by the 18th century, um, the prevailing legal and public opinion in England, England was that slavery was acceptable and profitable, and many people believed that the wealth and power of Britain would collapse without the slave trade. So then, as now... Um, Christians spoke out against it. Um, One of those Christians was John Wesley. John Wesley lived from 1703 to 1791. And he argued that just because something was legal doesn't make it acceptable. His comments about um, the slave trade were, can a human law turn light into darkness or evil into good? Notwithstanding 10,000 laws, right is right and wrong is wrong. So um, Wesley cheered on and encouraged William Wilberforce in his efforts to uh, overturn um, the the slave trade in Britain. Uh, Wilberforce lived from 1759 to 1833, and he's best known as a campaigner against slavery. He became a member of parliament in England at the age of 21 and was close friends with William Pitt, um, Britain's youngest ever prime minister. Uh, He was converted to Christianity and partly through the influence of John Newton, I don't know if you and his uh, testimony and preaching of the gospel, it helped that Newton had also been uh, involved in the slave trade. Um, Wilberforce was moved by uh, by Newton's uh, gospel preaching, and he was uh, encouraged by that. He wanted to do something, in his words, significant to to help humanity in general, and he found that cause in the abolition of slavery. On his deathbed, Wesley wrote to Wilberforce and said the following. He says, unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out with the opposition of men and devils. But if God is for you, who can be against you? That's what Wesley said on his own deathbed to Wilberforce saying, stay the course. You're going to encounter all kinds of pushback and opposition, but if God is with you, he will see you through it. So Wilberforce often had need of that encouragement because on the 12th of May, 1789, he rose to his feet in the House of Commons and delivered an eloquent, passionate, closely researched speech that lasted for four hours. (laughs) Different day, right? Can you imagine that getting any traction in today's society? Uh, The response. All you've said is good, Wilberforce, but we need more evidence. He had just given them four hours. (laughs) <laughs> of evidence, so we see that when it comes up against things like this, and we 'll get to this a little bit later in how America dealt with these sorts of issues, but when you get to this, you see the delay tactics that come in, the pushback that happens um, and this delaying tactic will be used again and again over the next eighteen years, as Wilberforce tried to make a case for it year after year. Wilberforce introduced a bill. Into the parliament to outlaw the slave trade, and year after year, the establishment prevaricated. They waffled, they pushed it back. He was vilified as a national traitor by many. English military lord, Lord Nelson, spoke of the damnable Wilberforce and his hypocritical allies. Sometimes he nearly achieved success. In 1796, his bill was thrown out by 74 votes to 70, four votes short, so close. Uh, The bill fell because about a dozen MPs who had promised support had not bothered to show up. They'd gone off to an opera and into into another country. Eventually, in 1807, the bill to abolish the slave trade passed by a staggering 283 in favor of 16 against. Wilberforce wept as the crowded House of Commons gave him a standing ovation. 26 years after that, just before his death, on July 26, 1833, Wilberforce received word that Parliament passed the Abolition Act, freeing 700,000 slaves. So uh, this was not his single-handed achievement. Wilberforce would tell you that. There were many, many people and Christians behind him who were working toward these sorts of human rights initiatives. Um, But his work was the foundation of what became a worldwide Cuban rights movement. Um, And his single-mindedness and his commitment to the task was what saw it through eventually. So that's the story of William Wilberforce. Now we know this guy, right? Charles Spurgeon. The Spurge, as he's affectionately known. Um, You may not know um, the story of, Charles Spurgeon and his role in abolishing slavery in the United States, but it was a significant one. Um, Abraham Lincoln issued, as we know, the Emancipation Proclamation, um, promising liberty to about three million enslaved black men and women. And uh, Charles Spurgeon spoke out against the American practice of slavery frequently in his sermons, Um, not just because it was in America, but it it had been history in the United States or at that time, it had been a very real reality in Britain as well. And he wrote, uh, in, or he preached in a sermon in the Metropolitan Tabernacle, the following. He says, the hope of deliverance seems far away, seemed far away, but it was God that gave Abraham Lincoln who led the nation onward till emancipation flamed upon its banners. Spurgeon exchanged correspondences with this great American Christian man, Frederick Douglass, repeatedly exchanging letters between the two of them, Um Spurgeon received former slaves, both in Britain and the Americas, into his pastor's college and into his pulpit to train them for ministry, and he condemned slavery in his sermons and media articles. He said in one particular article, I do from my inmost soul detest slavery, and although I commune at the Lord's table with men of all creeds, yet with a slaveholder, I have no fellowship of any sort or kind. Whenever one is called upon me, I have considered it my duty to my to express my detestation of his wickedness because he would get invited to preach in slaveholding churches and he would tell them, I'm not coming until you repent of your slaveholding and man-stealing. And I would as soon think of receiving a murderer into my church unrepentantly as a man-stealer. He was very strong in the ways he spoke about against man-stealing and chattel slavery in particular. So how did America respond to Spurgeon's efforts? Well... The following article appeared in an Alabama newspaper in 1860. The Montgomery Mail, Alabama says, A gentleman of this city requests us to invite, and we do hereby invite all persons in Montgomery who possess copies of the sermons of the notorious English abolitionist Spurgeon to send them to the jail yard to be burned on next Friday, this day week. A subscription is also on foot to buy of our booksellers all copies of said sermons, now in their stores to be burned on the same occasion, does anybody say nay? Well, evidently no one said nay because um, it was recorded a few days later in the ledger, several volumes of Reverend Mr. Spurgeon's sermons strongly tinctured with anti-slavery and abolition were burned in the jail yard. So what would have happened if Spurgeon had visited the southern United, United States in 1860 as a plan to do? Well, he was told by certain pastors at the time, the following. If you, Pharisaical author, should ever show up in these parts, we trust that a stout cord may speedily find its way around your eloquent throat. He would have been executed, or at least he had such threats related to that. Now, just to read a few more um, Takes On March 22nd of that same year, a vigilance committee in Montgomery followed suit and burned Spurgeon's sermons in the public square. A week later, Mr. B.B. Davis, a bookstore owner, prepared a good ore of pine sticks before reducing about 60 volumes of Spurgeon's sermons to smoke and ashes. British newspapers quipped that America had given Spurgeon a warm welcome, a literally brilliant reception. Anti-Spurgeon bonfires illuminated jail yards, plantations, bookstores, courthouses throughout the southern states. In Virginia, Mr. Humphrey H. Cuber, a Baptist preacher and highly respectable citizen of Matthews County, burned seven calfskin volumes of Spurgeon sermons on the head of a flower barrel. The arson was assisted by many citizens of high standing. In North Carolina, Spurgeon's famous sermon, Turner Burn, which was just a... An, uh, an evangelistic sermon on the gospel, found a similar fate when a Mr. Punch turned the second page and burned the whole. By 1860, slave-owning pastors were foaming with rage because they could not lay hands on the youthful Spurgeon. His life was threatened, his books were burned, his sermons censured, and below the Mason-Dixon line, the media catalyzed character assassinations. In Florida, Spurgeon was called in the newspaper a beef-eating, puffed-up, vain, over-righteous, pharisaical English blab In Virginia, he was called a fat, overgrown boy. In Louisiana, he was called a hell-deserving Englishman. In North Carolina, he was a vulgar young man with soiled, sleek hair, prominent teeth, and a self-satisfied air about him. Georgians were encouraged to pay no attention to him. North Carolinians would like a good opportunity at this hypocritical preacher and resent his, his, quote, Indish sentiments against our Constitution and citizens. In the weekly Raleigh Register they reported that anyone selling Spurgeon sermons should be arrested and charged with circulating incendiary publications. Southern Baptist ranked among Spurgeon's chief antagonists. The Mississippi Baptist hoped no Southern Baptist would now purchase any of his incendiary books. The Baptists of Virginia were forced to return all of his sermons to the publisher. The Alabama Baptist and Mississippi Baptist Register gave the Londoner 4,000 miles of an awful raking and took the hide off of him. The Southwestern Baptist and other denominational newspapers took spoiled child to task and administered due castigation to him. Now, in 1860, the article that we read entitled Mr. Spurgeon and the American Slaveholders offered the following words, which is not in this particular excerpt. Southern Baptists will not hereafter when they visit London desire to commune with this prodigy of the 19th century. We venture the prophecy that his books in the future will not crowd the shelves of our southern book merchants. They will not, they should not. And in 1889, Spurgeon uttered a prophecy of his own. He said, for my part, I'm quite willing to be eaten by dogs for the next 50 years, but the more distant future will vindicate me. I think he was right. Because the more distant future did vindicate him. His sermons do crowd the shelves of Southern Baptist bookstores. (laughs) And we can praise the Lord for that. And Carl... Henry rightly noted that Spurgeon has become one of the evangelical Christians' immortals. And throughout Alabama, Virginia, and the United States, the books of the notorious English abolitionists still burn, but in the hearts of all of God's people who have a privilege to read his sermons. So, praise the Lord for faithful Spurgeon in many ways. And of course, um, one story that I go back to again and again um, is with Martin Luther King. And his letter to Birmingham, from Birmingham jail. Um, I probably, I try to read parts of it, at least um, when uh, the third Sunday in June rolls around, just because it's such a powerful reminder of like, and I, and I know MLK has his own issues theologically, uh, practically in many ways, but but as far as the Christian worldview that was operating there and the ways in which he was engaging the discussion, it's, it's, it's rich and it's very commendable. Um, He wrote in his letter uh, from Birmingham jail, which we see the jail cell there, and um, part of it was scribbled on parchment there, um, which we have copies of, and there's him picking up a burned cross with his five-year-old next to him from his yard. Um, He says, we have waited for more than 340 years for our constitutional and God-given rights. The nations of Asia and Africa are moving with jet-like speed toward gaining political independence, but we still creep at horse and buggy pace toward gaining a cup of coffee at a lunch counter. Perhaps it's easy for those who've never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait. See, he's encountering the same stuff from Southern evangelical Christians as Wilberforce did in Britain. Just wait. Political process will play its way out. Just give us time. But when you've seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, when you've seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, and even kill your black brothers and sisters, when you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty, When you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park that has been advertised on television and see tears welling up in her eyes when she's told that Funtown is closed to colored children and see ominous clouds of inferiority beginning to form in her little mental sky and see her beginning to distort her personality by developing an unconscious bitterness toward white people. When you have to concoct an answer for a five-year-old son who's asking, Daddy... Why do white people treat colored people so mean? When you take a cross-country drive and you find it necessary to sleep night after night in the uncomfortable corners of your automobile because no motel will accept you? When you're humiliated day in and day out by nagging signs reading white and colored? When your first name becomes nigger and your middle name becomes boy, however old you are, and your last name becomes John, and your wife and mother are never given the respected title "Misses." When you're harried by day and haunted by night by the fact that you are a Negro living constantly at tiptoe stance, never quite knowing what to expect next and are plagued with inner fears and outer resentments, when you're forever fighting a denigrating sense of nobodiness, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. There comes a time when the cup of endurance runs over and men are no longer willing to be plunged into the abyss of despair. I hope, sirs, that you can understand our legitimate and unavoidable impatience. He was writing that to many Christian pastors who were sympathetic to his cause and were telling him we just needed more time. And then he, he writes one other excerpt and then we'll wrap up and pray. One other excerpt um, in the letter, he says, but though I was initially disappointed at being categorized as an extremist, as I continue to think about the matter, I gradually gained a measure of satisfaction from the label. Was not Jesus an extremist for love? "'Love your enemies, bless those that persecute you, "'do good to them that hate you, and pray for them "'which despisely use you and persecute you. "'Was not Amos an extremist? "'Let justice roll down like waters "'and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. "'Was not Paul an extremist for the Christian gospel? "'I bear in my bodies the marks of the Lord Jesus. "'Was not Martin Luther an extremist? "'Here I stand, I can do no other, God help me. "'And John Bunyan, I will stay in jail "'to the end of my days "'before I make a butchery of my conscience.' And Abraham Lincoln, this nation cannot survive half slave and half free. And Thomas Jefferson, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. So the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists will we be? Will we we be extremists for hate or for love? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or the extension of justice? So again, you can see, I hope from these three illustrative stories, we could line others up. I didn't have time to get into Frederick Douglass, but I wanted to kind of talk about him a little bit too, but, um, but I think those three stories are suffice to say that the origin of human rights, right, came from distinctly Christian principles. It was operating out of the image of God in man that is to be respected and honored because of God and the God-givenness of those rights. So um, I hope just sharing those three stories will encourage your hearts um, of the faithfulness um, of those um, of these people throughout um, history, and encourage us to remain faithful in our own day regarding um, all issues related to all the stuff we're going to talk about, with all the ways in which Christianity has impacted um, the world. Let's pray, Father. So grateful um, for the opportunity to dive into these stories um, that illustrate um, the origin of this whole discussion about freedom and human rights. Um, many of us. Are familiar with these people, familiar with some of these stories, um, and Lord, help us to lean into what Your Word says about being made in the image of God, and um, and and recognizing that with that comes a dignity and a value um, that is to be reflected in society and is to be honored by other image bearers. Um, Lord, you 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 emphasize this so much that um, James would say. How can it be that out of the same mouth comes blessing and cursing for God's image bearers? My brothers, this should not be so. And so, Lord, may we follow in the footsteps of our brother Jesus and his brother James in his instruction um, to, uh, to to see the image of God in, in all those that we interact with, to value them as image bearers, to respect the God-given rights that they have, and to honor them as image bearers, even where we disagree with their choices and their actions and lifestyles and various things. Lord, may we always be consistent uh, to show them respect. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.